0: Alright, so we are in Book of Ruth. If For those of you who are uh, new or newer, uh, we've been going through Judges. And we went through about 15 weeks of it in a book like this. There will be a second book like that for Part 2, which will be the second half that we'll go through in September. Uh, for this month, we're going through the Book of Ruth. And really, um, it's a pretty straightforward, simple sermon because it's a very simple story. And I actually believe we have a, a pretty simple God who speaks very simply. And the problem is never us understanding what he has to say. The problem is actually accepting it. Because he says some very straightforward things in his actions and, and clearly in his words. So we're going through the book of Ruth, a chapter a week. And the story is connected with uh, the 15 weeks that we went through in Judges because it takes, to- or it takes place during the same time period. Now, as we saw in the book of Judges, for those who have been with us, but if not, the book of Judges is is possibly the most, but at least one of the most disturbing stories in Scripture, with some of the most disturbing characters in Scripture doing some of the most disturbing things. Um, They actually are quite um, incredible, but really the story isn't about the heroes of Judges, it's about the one hero who is God, the one faithful individual, God Himself, who is on mission to love the unfaithful people and save them from themselves, from their sin. It's not a story about Him saving from every oppression. It's about Him really saving them from the brokenness of their own hearts. Now, most of the story of Judges takes place in this humongous, gigantic jumble. You can tell I'm a parrot size scale that's very big, like you have big rebellion and, and major uh, you know, groups of people and powerful judgments and nations judging nations and big battles and then kind of above and, and just huge over-the-top heroes that come in and, and deliver Israel. And with the death of each one of those big heroes, we saw in Judges that a new cycle would kind of begin of sinful rebellion, and then God would judge again, and He would bring a new deliverance. And you would think that after probably 12 times at least, there's probably a couple others people would argue are are judges, but one for each tribe, 12 times of God coming in saying, look, you guys are screwing up, punishing them, they cry, He delivers them from that. After delivering them 12 times from their own sin, you'd think they'd be a little more faithful. But what you see is with each chapter, they become less faithful, and by the time you get done with the whole story of Judges, they're worse off than when they began. And there is no king in Israel, they're crying out for a leader, and ultimately it's pointing them towards Jesus, the Rescuer and the Savior that they truly need. But in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this unfaithfulness, the story of unfaithfulness, you have this little story that is really like a little love story called Ruth. And it's much more than a love story between a a young woman and, and a man. It's actually intended to be a love story between God and His people. And so just as we don't look at judges and just go, oh, look at Israel's doom, we look bigger and say, look at my own sin. Look at my own unfaithfulness and my own need of a Savior. You look at Ruth and you see this picture of God, the spotlight of God being faithful in His loving pursuit of an unfaithful people. So the story of Ruth is kind of this, is the story within the story that's going on. And it's a glimpse into what a sovereign and good God is doing to accomplish His mission, not despite the sins of men, but actually through them which is difficult for us, I think, to really comprehend. The story is, is not big. It's very small, and the characters are not um, really amazing. They're very ordinary, very ordinary. And it's a story about one small family and one non-Israelite young woman, a widow, in fact. And she serves as the, the solitary kind of light of hope in this big, overarching picture of darkness in the book of Judges. And ultimately, it is intended to lead us to the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. And when all things appear, as we're going to see in this first chapter, pretty hapless and and somewhat hopeless, God is faithful. And this story literally leads us to Jesus. Jesus ends up being the descendant of Jesus this young woman, and we'll see that as the story unfolds. But the book of Ruth is is this. It reminds us a couple things, that God does work visibly. God does work in ways that we see with prophets speaking and and armies being moved around and uh, miracles happening, but God is also invisibly working in ways that we see, but we don't necessarily make the connection that it's God. He is mysteriously always working, all the time, even in the midst of tragedy. It's a story for those, really all of us, who have and who are and who will suffer tragedy or loss or pain. And it's a story where God shows up, especially when people are wondering where He is in the midst of heartbreak. Why is he silent? It's a story for those who will doubt whether God is in control. It's a story who will doubt whether God is actually good and whether faithfulness to do what's right in hard times especially is even worth it. And it's a story lastly for people who question, I think, whether all things, including suffering, are in fact purposed by God for good. Not difficult to see what God's saying. Very straightforward, but somewhat difficult to believe. So we'll pray that He takes it into our hearts. Starting verse 1, He says this In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahon and Chilion, And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left there with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. Now, you wouldn't think of it, but the series, sermon series is called Hope. Okay? But when you start off in this first chapter, it's written literally to give you a very clear and stark picture of just how hopeless this situation is. How hopeless this family is. And really, again, as we, as we bridge it to our own lives. This is giving us a picture of how helpless we are, how bad our situations are that I don't think we necessarily even consciously admit sometimes. We don't think we need rescuing that often. And we do. So this is written to show how hopeless and helpless the situation is. And the first seven words say a lot. It, this is happening in the days of judges. And because we've gone through judges, for most of us who are here, we understand Judges. We know that the world of Judges is described as one in which there is no king and that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And what that amounts to is a world that is full of political and moral and religious and social and economic, economic chaos. Right? Sounds like America 2012. Bad leaders are causing this. I don't mean bad president, I mean bad leaders, all the way down to bad fathers and families. Bad pastors, bad lots of men. Because men, all men, are unfaithful. And we see it clearly in Judges, full bore. This is what a world run by men, not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, looks like. And that, when we talk about men doing right in their own eyes, if you read Judges, that's not just true of God's enemies. That's true of God's people, of his children, of his, quote, good guys, men like Gideon. They are just as unfaithful. And then among God's unfaithful people is this family, Elimelech. And if you remember, the last guy we read about in Judges was a guy named Abimelech. So Don't confuse the two. Abimelech was the really wounded son of, Of Gideon, who wanted to be great and basically destroyed anyone in his path. That's Abimelech. His name meant, My father is king. That's important. Now we're talking about Elimelech. Elimelech is a man of Judah. He is the husband to one wife. He is a father of two young boys, and he is living in the city of Bethlehem. And the names are very important. In this story, and often in most stories in the Bible, his name means, Elimelech, my God is king. Okay, so Abimelech, the guy we read about, my father's king, Elimelech, with an E, name means my God is king. His wife' name means God is sweet or just pleasant. Okay, God is sweet or just pleasant. That's Naomi's name. The names of his two boys, Maon and Achilleon, mean sick And decay or dying. Okay? So you can tell, I mean, pretty broken situation. And as we see in Scripture, most of the names, like when a father named its child, it was based often on the place they were at or the situation that brought it about or the feelings they had towards God at the time. So when you name your kids sick and dying, you can see that that's probably inspired some pretty broken environment they're living in right now. Namely, that they are in terrible conditions in Bethlehem. Terrible conditions. Hey, Ebola, right? You know, come on over here. It's bad. It's bad. They're in the middle of a famine, which is probably the judgment of God. Why? Because most famines in Scripture are judgments of God, and this is the time of judges, so it would fit the pattern. So the conditions in this city are terrible. It is a city, Bethlehem, known as not only the city of David, yet, not called that yet, but the city called the house of bread, and there is no bread to eat. That's why we think it's God's judgment. So Elimelech is struggling probably to find work, struggling to find food, Struggling to find um, just any kind of livelihood. And he has the weight of responsibility for caring for two young boys and his wife. And he's starting to feel that. And so he's beginning to survey, what do I do? What are my options here? And the choice he makes, which we'll see is a foolish one, decides to uproot his entire family and move them into a pagan land where they worship foreign gods. That's what he decides. And then after uprooting his family and planting them in Moab, he dies. Seems pretty quickly. And so now suffering is followed by more tragedy. And Naomi has a little bit of hope, though. She's got two boys. All right. The boys can hold down the fort. The boys can work. They're strong. They'll provide. We'll be okay. And for a time, they're okay. And then sadly, it seems that dad didn't do the greatest job of teaching them God's ways because the boys decide, and that's all really they have in front of them, to be honest, to marry pagan women, which was against God's covenant. So they marry two Moabite women One marries a woman named Orpah and her name means gazelle and we'll see that she is a runner. And the other one is named Ruth and her name means friendship and we'll see that she is very much that. She's a keeper. And they live with Naomi, kind of as the matriarch, so to speak. We have the two boys and their wives. They live together for 10 years and have no babies. Which again... We talk about Scripture, talk about the book of Judges, talk about the decisions Elimelech's making, most likely a judgment of God. And after ten years, the two boys die. seems like they died pretty close to one another. And we see that God is not only in charge of life, He's in charge of death. He is the one that calls all the shots with babies and with funerals. And just like her husband before her, Naomi now is in the same exact struggle that her husband was. She has little food. She's got to work extremely hard, and she's responsible for a family that is now suffering, and she has this weight on her shoulders because of this tragedy, and she has to make a decision about what to do. She weighs the various options, and she decides to return home to Bethlehem. Verse 6 says this, She arose... "...with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab..." So she's working in the fields. "...that the Lord had visited His people and given them food." So He's lifted the famine. "...so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "...go return each of you to her mother's house." May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? she turns to her daughters and tells them to go back home. Go back to mom and dad's house. She tells them to go home, find a new husband, have a family, and they cry together. Why? Because they are deeply connected. They have been through tragic suffering together, and quite frankly, that is one thing that binds people together when they go through pain and suffering together. You see it on the most simplest things like, you ever watched, I'm sure you've never watched Survivor. Me neither, I've only applied like three times. But, right, I'll never get on, the pastor. You'll never get on. You'll be kicked out first. But, those people spend 30 days starving with one another, suffering for who knows, really dumb reasons, but they do, and they come out like best friends. And then there's the worst kind of sufferings where families go through experience and they're bound together because of the pain. So they're weeping. This isn't just, oh, I've been with you for a while. They've gone through 10 years of a lot of pain, experienced tragedy and loss together. And so they both refuse to leave at first, say, no, we're coming with you. But then out of love, I think, Naomi launches into a very persuasive um, anti-evangelism campaign to convince them that it's utter foolishness to follow her. And practically speaking, she's right. Practically speaking, there's absolutely no reason why they should hang out with her. Um, There's nothing tangible for them to get or hope for with her. She says, look, I have nothing. She's penniless. And I'm a widow, which means I'm not going to really be able to work a lot. I'm old. Few people are going to probably want to marry me. I have no extended family to care for me. I have no more sons for you to marry, which is referring, and will make sense as the story unfolds, referring to the Israel custom where a brother would marry the wife of his deceased brother to carry on the family name. She's like, I have no more sons. And even if I were to get married tomorrow, you're not going to wait for young Jethro to grow up so you can marry him and you'll be old and he'll be old enough to marry. And she also says, um, basically, I'm going to die as a widow, and you will die with me. And I have bitterness because God is against me right now. And so you can see she most likely is blaming God for the famine that got us out, for Elimelech's decision to lead them out, for the death of Elimelech, blaming God for the death of her sons and the situation she's in. So she says... Girls, I love you. She says it three times. Go home to mom and dad. Get food and shelter. Find a new husband. Have babies and raise them to worship your false gods. That's what she says. Pretty broken. And here's their response after that convincing argument. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I think it's, I, I think it's interesting that a lot of people use that passage and that, that big, powerful statement that Ruth uh, used in weddings. And if they understood the context, they'd be like, I don't know if that's the best wedding verse to be used Okay, she is committing to something I don't know if we even understand what she's committing to we'll break it down a little bit there's a lot to be learned about hope in suffering these women are suffering and they expect to suffer and this sermon and, and many other sermons are not going to lay out every doctrine of uh, the, the doctrine of suffering and every nuance and, and, and truth about that that's not the intent here There's a lot about suffering that I do not and will not and we will not ever understand. We, honestly, I think, really want the answers to the why questions. And we foolishly believe if God gave us those answers, we'd be okay with it. But we don't get the why questions answered very often. I think it's foolish for pastors sometimes that people have terrible suffering to start going, hey... Let me tell you why this is happening. Usually in those situations, I talk much more about the character of God because I don't understand oftentimes why suffering occurs. Sometimes I can connect the dots, but even those I don't trust all the time. I can trust in God's character. And we see that each of these four individuals all experience hardship together, but they all experience it very differently. They each respond very differently and I think for us, the question is not if, but when we are going to experience suffering. How are we going to respond? Now, suffering can be all kinds of things. There are some things that are just irritating to people that would devastate someone else. And vice versa, things that devastate others. People go, hey, we can work through that, no big deal. For some people, suffering is, is really materialistic. I just can't pay bills, have food on the table. For others, it's broken relationships, and it's being, uh, you know, shamed. It, it, suffering for you, I don't know. But you do. The question is, when that suffering occurs, whatever it is, whatever color it takes, whatever form it is, question for myself that I ask, will I believe God in this situation that I cannot control? that I cannot do anything about? Will I trust Him even if He doesn't take me out of it? Will I run away? Will I follow Him into it even deeper, if that's what He chooses? What am I going to trust in more? The unchanging character of God or the ever-changing character of my circumstances? Which one? What's going to grab my heart? And I want to say before we break this down that, that suffering is very real. And I really I don't want to be flippant about uh, the kinds of hardships and tragedies that people are have or will experience or talk about it in some theori- theoretical kind of world. Like, you know, when we have suffering. Because in our church right now, people that you are sitting next to, people in first service, people who have come and gone, and you may know and you may not know, there's tragedies and suffering and pains being experienced. Randy shared one of his own. There are people that have been hurt. There are people that have hurt. And there are people who have lost their jobs. And it's been over a year now. That people that are losing their homes, people are struggling paying bills. We have people who, uh, in this church, have had uh, four, three or four miscarriages in the last seven months. We have people who um, are sick. And we have people in our church right now who are dying. And they cannot control anything. And some of these people you know and some of you don't. But they're here. And some of you are sitting next to them or behind them or in front of them. You don't even know it. And I pray that you will know them at some point. And because of a lot of these experiences that people go through, they begin to start feeling a little bit hopeless. And that hopelessness... I think sometimes, and maybe, dare I say often, leads us to doubt whether God is actually real, whether God is good, or whether he's really in control. I know the verses. But man, it's hard to believe that. So I want to look at these four people and see how they each responded, and maybe you find yourself in one of these, I don't know. You take a Limelech first, um, when he faced hardship when conditions got hard and i don't know what that is for you right maybe in the day you lost your job maybe in the day that that person you trusted hurt you maybe the day you contracted whatever sickness you the doctor says you have this but when suffering hit him he tried to control his suffering so as to avoid it altogether he puts Ultimately, hope in himself to, by his own wisdom and his own ability and his own work, get himself out of the situation. His name, ironically, means God is king, but apparently, God plays absolutely no role in how he leads his family through this difficult time. If you just take for what you see here, he does not pray. He does not consider repenting of his own sin that the whole faithfulness of judges is all about collectively in Israel and individually, men like Elimelech. He does not seek out wise counsel. And when he does not have bread to eat in the house of bread, that is the city of Bethlehem, he fails to remember the verse in Deuteronomy that didn't just show up for the first time when Jesus used it to fight the temptation against Satan. The first that says, and everyone's familiar with, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Elimelech does not go to the word of God. Instead, he decides to uproot his family because he thinks that's what we should do. He leads his family away from their relatives, he leads them away from their community away from their church, and ultimately to death, that was out of his control. God is king, quote-unquote, acts as if he is king, and he does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. He does exactly what the men and women of Judges have done. See, faithlessness is not simply making ungodly, worldly decisions I think most often faithlessness is just making decisions without God. And so he, in an effort to control his suffering, control the hardship, control the situation, he hopes in himself, and as a result, he brings more tragedy to his family. Stuff he doesn't even see happen because he's dead. So then you have Orpah. Not Oprah. Orpah. Put the R in front of her, right? Orpah. And Orpah runs, runs from the suffering. And what she does is she places hope, so they got running from suffering, placing hope in what? False gods. Now, I think, quite honestly, most of us probably view, if we kind of step back, go, well, Orpah does what's reasonable. I mean, she does what Naomi tells her to. This is the the ordinary human response to a bad situation that's out of control. It's the most sensible path for a young woman with all kinds of potential who could still get married. And quite honestly, this is what we should expect from most people who do not believe in God. This is what we should expect from people when they hit hardship who do not believe in God. Because those who have genuine faith in God will experience suffering differently. They will experience suffering, but they will experience it differently. Tragedies in our lives, suffering in our lives, loss, pain, disappointments, expectations that are unmet, disillusionment often reveals the nature of our faith whether it was just routine, whether it's just a label, whether it's just a way of walking, you know, a language, a way of acting, or whether it was real, and that's not for anyone else but for you for me. Orpah basically says, you know what? I tried this faith thing. It didn't work. I didn't get the prosperity, the blessing, whatever it is I had hoped for. I'm not a Christian. I never was a Christian. I don't need the church. See you later. I'll just go back to where I came from and find some other gods that will give me what I want, which is satisfaction. Maybe it's success. Who knows? And that, I think, quite frankly, is the way most people deal with suffering. They go to false gods. And there are lots to choose from. But they're looking for something to free them from the pain. Right? If you ask someone, what do you do to free yourself from the pain? Things come to mind. Oh, alcohol, other substances, relationships, success in my job. I'll just pour into my job. That's where I'll get what I need and ignore all this stuff. They run to false gods, and that's what Orpah does. She runs from suffering, her hope gets placed in something that's not God. She hopes to get saved, freed, get meaning and hope and joy from fill in the blank. In her case, it's the false god, Chemosh, the god of the Moab. Then you have Naomi. Let's read what Naomi does. Naomi is, in uh, verse 19, a very bitter old woman. So after Orpo runs off, Naomi says she's going with her. I'm sorry, Ruth says she's going with her. Naomi returns home. Verse 19 says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Right? You don't have the men talking about it, just the women in the small town. Is this Naomi? I remember when she left, right? So she hears them. She said to them, do not call me sweetness. Do not call me God as sweet. Do not call me pleasant. You call me bitter. You call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's what Mara means, bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Ain't nothing sweet about my life. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi, you got Elimelech who tries to control it, hopes in himself. You got Orpah, who runs from it and just hopes in false gods, and now you've got Naomi. She isn't trying to control her suffering. She isn't running from her suffering. She's sitting smack dab in the middle of it, bitter. Bitter. And she's not real secretive about it. She is loud, and she is honest, which I kind of appreciate, actually. I think uh, one of the things that maybe... Irritates me the most is when people experience incredible hardship, and you can tell that you're just kind of fake about it. And sometimes that's, you know, through cheesy Christian sayings with smiles on their faces and birds on their shoulders. I appreciate her honesty here. But more than anything, as bitter as Naomi might be, she holds to some very serious theology. Notice what she says. She believes, in, in, as she's expressing her bitterness, that God is real, that God is in control, and that God brings affliction. And I think it's important for us. I was reading something John Piper wrote. And I think it's important for us to remember that not all affliction is connected to our disobedience. There's a verse in Psalm that is one of those ones that we may read past. Um, and it's actually out of uh, my favorite Psalm, Psalm 34. Well, it's taste to see if the Lord is good, the glorious song we sing. Verse 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Who's saying that and writing that? David. Where? In a cave where the king of Israel, he's been anointed king, Hates him and is trying to kill him. And his enemies are trying to kill him too. And he's sitting in a cave. He's not guilty of anything. But they all hate him. And he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord will deliver. Trials and suffering are used to bring about God's plan. And his plan is to rescue people from within a broken world. And that means that he uses, because there ain't much else to use, broken means to do it. That's how big he is. We should be more awed by the fact that he can bring together the most incredible, glorious, joyful thing out of this mess that we're in. And quite honestly, the messes that we are. But that doesn't mean that God causes every bad thing that happens. Don't go that far. We need to remember that God is king, though, and that he reigns as much as Elimelech might ignore his name, meaning he is in control of everything that happens, including bad things. If God is not in control of bad things, he's not in control of nothing. God is either sovereign of all things, or he's sovereign over nothing. And it's not enough for me to have a God that's really loving. I wish I could do something for you. I need a God who can be loving, and can do something about it, even if it comes through pain. God is wise enough, powerful enough, loving enough to work everything together for His good purpose and our joy. That's what Scripture teaches. What does it mean for God to be wise enough? It means that He does the right thing at the right time and the right way every time. If not, if he makes one mistake, he is not perfectly wise. That's not the God of the Bible. If there's one thing out of his control, oops, didn't see that coming. He is not in control, that's not the God of the Bible. If it's not purposed for good, if it not ultimately will lead to his glory and our joy, then he's not a good God. But it does. But unfortunately, bitterness, when we experience hardship, bitterness, like Naomi's, can blind us from any of the graces that are right in front of us. We begin to exaggerate our situation to make it way worse than it actually is. God hates me. He's against me. He wants me to die. He is taking everything away. He wants me to suffer. Ignoring what is right in front of us. For Naomi, it blinded her from recognizing a couple things. That God had blessed Bethlehem. That he had taken the famine away. And he had brought her back, which that's what brought her back. She heard about it through the Moab fields. Went back to Bethlehem. Just happened to show up at harvest time. Which is important as the story unfolds. It blinded her to remembering that While she may have gone away full, had a husband, had two kids, we had a plan, she did not come back empty. She had Ruth. Right? Can you imagine? I'm bitter. Don't call me sweet. I have nothing. Ruth's like, hello. I can hear you saying that. Right? I'm here. Ruth was there and blinded her from actually seeing how God was going to bless her through the redemption of Ruth by a man named Boaz, a relative that was alive, that she had forgotten about, but God had not. This whole story is about God remembering, not like, oh, Boaz, like, but God knowing. Exactly what he's doing. Directing every step. Remembering his promise to his people to be faithful, to love them, to care for them, to never leave them or forsake them. So she sits in her suffering. She's pretty hopeless, not hoping in much. And then you have Ruth, the Moabite, the non-Jew. Okay? This is a picture of anyone who is a Gentile who has been brought in and redeemed into the family of God. This is a proclamation the beginning of the Gospel. The story of Ruth is really a story about us. And she experiences the same suffering that they do, that Naomi did, that Orpah did, and she responds completely differently. She doesn't try to control and measure it out. What will be the best decision? She doesn't try to run. She does not remain bitter like Naomi. She, in fact, chooses to walk deeper into suffering. That's huge. Here's what Ruth recognizes. I don't want to be like Ruth. That's really bad, okay? But there's something about Ruth that she has, and if this is what it is, okay, we'll go with it. And that is that Ruth recognizes one thing. She is helpless. She is totally helpless in terms of the tangible, earthly things for herself or for anyone else, she is helpless, but the one thing she is not is hopeless. So if being like Ruth is admitting my brokenness, admitting I'm helpless, admitting that I don't have it all figured out, that I am scared, that I'm a little bitter, I'm a little broken, but I know I can't save myself, I have hope in something outside of myself, I eat Jesus, let's be like Ruth. It's okay to be like Ruth. Her name means friendship, and because of her friendship to this bitter old woman, she follows her and becomes one with her people. Now, let's not forget that her journey begins without knowing what happens in chapter 4. So if we get rid of chapter 2, 3, and 4, and that's all that Ruth has, it's a huge step of faith. The only thing that she knows, the only thing that she is confessing, the expectations that she has, that I will be with Naomi, I will worship Yahweh, and I will die. That's what she talks about. I will go with you, and where you're buried, I will be buried. When you die, I will die. That's the guarantee. I'm probably going to die. She's going with no husband, no family, no job. Very little to to give her any earthly hope. But with the little hope that she does have, we see that she faithfully walks toward God. She walks toward God's people, believing and trusting in whatever she knows about God. And with this point, it's unclear. Maybe for 10 years, she saw Naomi faithful. Maybe her husband, for 10 years, she saw him faithful. Wherever it came from, we're not sure but she presses into her suffering and she hopes in faith. This whole story starts out dark, but what it's trying to do is get little glimpses that there is hope in suffering. There is hope in tragedy. There is hope in brokenness and hurt. God is a God who is in control of all things. He has not abandoned this broken world and He works within the ashes of creation and He does bring out beauty Sometimes we get to see it. Sometimes we don't, but we must trust and believe it. God is king, and He reigns in all of the affairs of men, big and small, nations and family. And with Naomi even, if you look at it, whether God had given or taken away, Naomi never completely doubted that God was actually involved in all aspects of her life. Now, she may have not liked how He was involved, that's honest. But she didn't deny that he was involved. At times, she didn't like how he was there, and at times, her bitterness blinded her from all that God was doing. But she had good theology. And what God was doing as much as she couldn't see it or was blinded to it, was working to deliver her from her darkness. And though she didn't know it, through her family and through her bringing Ruth, God was rescuing all of Israel out of the darkness of Judges, of that incredibly dark time. First, through Ruth's, what would be Ruth's great-great-great-great-grandson, King David. And what would be her uber-grandson Jesus who would deliver us all. She couldn't see that. She didn't know that. But we have the joy of seeing that. We have the truth of seeing it, that God does work, that God is there in the midst of tragedy. And so, again, I know that many of us are suffering in different ways, raw ways. Randy shared what he is suffering with People in the church, I've explained all the different things, and there's people that I don't know that I know are suffering. And honestly, I wish I could, but I cannot tell you why, beyond the fact that we live in a broken world with broken people who have broken bodies, who do broken things. But that's not where I put my faith. I put my faith in Christ. Belief in Jesus does not take away every tragedy. In fact, if our life is to emulate him, it's going to have a tremendous amount of suffering. Some irritating, some devastating. But while a believer and an unbeliever can experience the exact same tragedy, they can, they can have the same loss, the same level of suffering, through faith in Christ, they should experience them differently. If you confess faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Jesus as God, as creator of all things, sustainer of all things, as Lord and Savior, the one who bled and died for you, don't try to control so as to avoid suffering. That will only lead you to hope in yourself. Your mind is broken. Your work is insufficient. We must hope in the only one who can rescue us. Working and depending upon yourself is only going to lead you away from God. And you don't want to run from it and and begin to hope in other false gods that, that might work out better. In other saviors. And I don't think we want to just sit and be bitter and paralyzed and do nothing. I just can't believe that happened. This is terrible. I really hope in in absolutely nothing happening. I don't think, and I will say there's nothing wrong with being angry. I think there's nothing wrong with being frustrated and, and even disappointed and brutally honest about how you're feeling with God. It's not as if you're like, this sucks. You're like, oh, oh, I can't believe you said that. You're supposed to enjoy every second of this. James said, have joy. Like, be careful. It's okay to be angry, it's okay to be frustrated. But here's the only thing I would say if you're going to, like Naomi, voice it, voice it in community, voice it with the people of God. Voice it with people who can encourage you, who can love you, who can be with you, who can cry with you, who can rejoice with you, and who can kick you in the butt if you need it. Isolation will take you away from God. Be honest, be open, but be that with community. And as hard as it is, press into suffering. Admit you are helpless, but don't ever believe you're hopeless. Press into it. Walk toward God, as painful as it might be. Walk toward God's people. Lean on the cross till you got splinters in your hand where Jesus bled and died for you. And remind yourself of this the resurrection. Like if we only have Friday. If we only have the crucifixion of Christ, if we only have the reality that this world is so screwed up that they killed the best man, if that's all he was, if that's all you have, yeah, that's a dark, despairing, hopeless place. But as Christians, you have Sunday. Christians have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Jesus declared himself Lord and King and ruler of all and defeater of Satan, sin, and death. He is the one that gave us hope through the resurrection. And the resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt. And this is why it's the center of Christianity. That suffering, although painful, although always mysterious, not always understood, it is never, ever, 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 ever ever senseless. It is never out of God's control. It is always purposed for good. And the cross proves that he is not some capricious God standing back, hoping to figure it out. He comes down and says, I will suffer for you. I am a good God. I am a loving God. And the resurrection says, and I'm also in control of everything. So we celebrate and worship God in the midst of suffering, not to get it out of the way, pray that it does then it's gone. That's great. Continue to pray that. But our faith is in the character of God's unchanging nature, not in the character of our ever-changing circumstances. That's where faith is. That's where hope and suffering is. And As you see Ruth unfold, you're going to see he's going to start pouring out grace upon grace upon grace, and he blows it up to see, look at how much I am saving you from and have saved you too. That's what we celebrate on Sunday. We take communion every Sunday. We come up and declare, we are helpless. We are. We cannot rely on ourselves. We're not going to rely on some false God. But we are not hopeless. That is where our faith comes from. Let's pray.